Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Back in December of 2017, when 12 Geniuses was just an idea, I wrote down the names of 22 people I wanted to interview for this show. The names include some of the most accomplished people in sports, the arts, and business. One of those names belongs to hip-hop artist, poet, and podcaster Dessa. Today, she joins us to talk about the various leadership roles she plays as a musician, writer, and when she's creating new episodes as host of the Deeply Human podcast. We also talk about her daring collaboration with the Minnesota Orchestra and how that experience helped spur growth by pushing her out of her comfort zone. Dessa, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks for having me. Can you describe what you do for work? Yeah, I work in the language arts. So I make music and I write stuff, articles or a book or some poems. And your music takes you on tour. Can you talk a little bit about your touring history over the last couple of decades and maybe even how that was disrupted by the pandemic? You know, it's interesting in a way that might be predictable for those of you who subscribe to services like Spotify, which I also do. The way that money is made, at least in pop music, isn't very often derived from the sale of the music because it streams for free. So usually the way we make money is by getting in the van and playing live, which means that there's a pretty serious onus on the musician to tour and tour heavily. So I started touring not quite two decades ago, but maybe almost like 15, 16 years ago, maybe started doing so pretty regularly. And it's an adventure. It is both glamorous and humbling in really dramatic doses. You know, the days are long, but if you're lucky, the company is really good. So for me, that's meant crisscrossing the U.S. and sometimes Canada many times, usually in like a 15 passenger van. And also I've been able to do some touring overseas. So Western Europe and Australia and once through China. And, you know, you have like a 90, technically probably like a 90 minute workday where you're on stage. But most of the rest of the day is spent as a commuter, <laughs> you know, as you're trying to get to the next gig. So there's a lot of time in the car, a lot of meals eaten on your lap, but a lot of really great conversations with friends and a lot of freedom you know, to choose the trajectory of your own life, even if at times it can feel like there's a bit of a headwind, you know, it's a competitive field. And it's also just hard to, it can be kind of tricky to figure out how to extract, how to make it lucrative, how to monetize the thing. But yeah, you get to make music that you're passionate about and be your own boss, at least in the indie world. Over the last four years, I've been doing this podcast, and it's really to explore trends that are shaping the way we live and work. And my thesis is really that leadership is more important now than at any point in my lifetime, maybe not more important than during World War II, but certainly the amount of changes that we're going through really require some great leadership. And that's what I'm exploring in this season is you know, talking with leaders, different types of leaders, and you are certainly one of those leaders and you wear different hats and you play different roles. So you're on tour, you're recording music, you host this incredible podcast, Deeply Human, which I'm really diving into and enjoying. It's, it's such a nice companion to what I'm doing because you're exploring the human condition. And I just wonder, how do you think of your role as a leader? And maybe that changes depending on what role you're playing. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, when you talk about trends, I think for better or worse, what used to be sort of a fringe or exotic category of gig worker has become a category that a growing number of us fall into. The way that we understand work to be compensated, the way that we understand it to be associated with security or lack thereof. I think a lot more of us are sort of walking on a tightrope of either temporary work or, you know, fulfilling lucrative work but in a position that maybe doesn't come with like a 20 year career trajectory and dental and vision. So I would say that when I think about leadership, I do think about it as sort of a fluid role. I'm not a video game player. <laughs> you can tell by the way I said that. I'm not a gamer, but, but I think of even like when you're playing like a soccer game or something and you can see the players light up as the ball is passed to them. I think about about it a little bit like that. So even in the the projects that you've mentioned thus far, like with Deeply Human, which is a podcast that I do, that I host for the BBC and American Public Media, it's like a joint venture with them and iHeart Media. Sometimes I'm in a leadership role and sometimes I'm not, you know? So I think in the writing of the scripts, I'm eager if I can to like finagle my way into a leadership position and that I feel confident with my facility with words. But when we're creating the episode, I mean, you know, it's often the case that producers are taking the leadership role or when we're in the editorial process, you know, well, then our editor is in the leadership position. So I think in some ways it's about keeping an eye towards the kind of excellence that you're hoping to achieve in your project. And then as you maneuver through the stages of executing that project, passing the sage stick or whatever, you know, the leadership hat to the person who's best positioned to be able to execute on that phase. Yeah. So even in my band, you know, it's like the songs are mine in that I write the words before them every night, but, you know, I work with a pair of producers real regularly, Laserbeak and Andy Thompson. And yeah, when we are, you know, mixing the snare drums, it is in everybody's best interest that I not be in a leadership position because I can only turn them up or down. I don't really, you know, I don't have the finesse of the facility with compression and, you know, all the auditory polish that, that a great mixer would. So yeah, I do think about it as fluid. And, and I think that I was talking to a friend about this the other day, about the importance essentially of collaborating with people who's areas of excellence are near enough your own that you can recognize them and understand them, but for this, but for far enough from you that the project is bolstered and territorialism is avoided, you know? So partnering with people who are good at stuff you're not doing, to me, essentially creates a precondition for that sort of um, fluid leadership. You mentioned collaboration, and I think that's so important. And also that you don't have to have all of the answers, which as a leader, you get comfortable with that as you mature, and or at least that's that was my experience. The truth is, you just have to identify who has competence and then allow them to shine when their time comes. So it, that's what I hear from you is that you're very collaborative in a leadership way. And when you think you can add value, you do. And when you know somebody else can, you just get out of the way. How did you develop some of your leadership abilities? Did you have a mentor you watched or you learned from? What was your process there? I did, yeah. Early in my career as a hired pen, so writing essentially like pacemaker implantation guides as a tech writer, 
I worked for a guy named Tony Signorelli and he ran an agency for writers. And I was really young at the time and self-conscious about it. So I wore like, you know, a wedding ring and I had a pager with no batteries in it that I would check. <laughs> and it hurts to look a little more adult, but, but he was really good at processes. So like, in a field like technical writing, you're just not going to be a subject matter expert in whatever you're writing about. You can't be. It's impossible. You're hired on all sorts of stuff. Your job is to organize information. And it's just part of the gig that you will be ignorant to that information until it is given to you by a subject matter expert. So how to manage ignorance was a really interesting lesson from him. When do I need to populate a folder in my head with information? And how do I do that in a way that where I can be honest about the fact that I'm ignorant without totally like torpedoing my credibility. And so one of the things that he would suggest was like, A, don't ask a million times a day, save all your questions for your subject matter expert towards the end, I mean, whatever, the end of the day, the week, a pre-appointed time, collect them all in one place, phrase your questions carefully using the right words to the best of your ability. And if you can, Come up with two or three possible answers that seem reasonable to you so that you're demonstrating to your subject matter expert that you kind of get the lay of the land, that you're not just, what, you know, what is this is not a great way to ask questions. And then be proactive. That was a big one. Like try to anticipate the needs of the team and the people I was working with them so much. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. If they can come to you with two or three possible solutions and then you can maybe deviate from that, or at least you have a starting point. And even just, even just, you know, that a problem is flagged in the spirit of solving it, even if none of those solutions happen to work, right? It's not just flagging problems because red flags are easy to throw, right? And plays are hard to correct. So it demonstrates, I think, a willingness to be part of, yeah, a better outcome, you know, to invest the sweat equity to make that happen. Do you have a mentor right now? I think I have a lot of people that I admire. But yeah, for all the mentors out there, <laughs> holler. No, I don't have a dedicated mentor. I admire Laser, somebody I work with in Gucci. I admire my manager, Becky. She really, she re-educated me on the way that a role like manager, which is very, you know, leadership and a, an advocacy role could be done because until I worked with her, I always thought when something went wrong, that was the time when managers would muscle up. You know, the way that I was told in manager work was like when there was friction, the manager would step in to handle it to save the good feeling, the bonhomie for the artist so that you could always be on kind of good terms with people and the scuffles would happen between managers and the third parties. Becky just stays nice. You know, she just doesn't. I was like, okay, Becky, let's bulldog, let's go. And she never really bulldogged. And so I thought, well, what's going on? You know, what, how, what are we missing out? And niceness worked. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was a much needed re-education for how much a great, like she's on the ball. She nudges when it's time to nudge, but she doesn't get adversarial. And um, I thought that was part of the gig and I was wrong. There are a bunch of different tools that you can use and leverage as a leader to get the best out of your people or the people around you. And you know, recognition is one of them, incentives and purpose or per personal development. Even fear is a motivator. And I just wonder, do you have a couple that you lean on a regular basis to get the best performance out of the people around you? Yeah, I mean, I try to be really 
transparent and forthright. And, you know, the people I work with could probably tell you better than I could the extent to which I'm successful in that. But usually when I start working with someone, if it's going to be a, you know, a long-term relationship where we're going to be working closely with one another, I'll ask, what's your win? So I'll try to build an incentive based on where they want to go. Sometimes people are like, yo, I need to, I'm saving for a kid. I got to kick up, you know, I got to earn money. Sometimes People are looking to get famous, you know, or recognize sometimes people just want to get to a really big stage. They just love performing. They love being on stage. Sometimes people much prefer to stay out of the limelight and be part of something. Like, so for an example, I remember seeing a friend of mine, Matthew Santos, had a new project a few years ago. It was called Moniker. It was a three-piece, like, kind of pop guy group. And there was so, he was, his voice shone in this group. The songs were so good. And I thought, God, what a cool setup. I was looking for a touring band and I thought, I wonder if they would tour with me as my backing band, essentially, you know, and I asked Matthew and that was not a role that they had ever done. You know, they're their own group. And I knew that I didn't have the money to make that um, really attractive to them. I mean, that's a ridiculous request, right? Like stop your band's career and come on the road with me. But I thought as a band, I know that they're looking to open for people to make new fans. All of us are. So what if it's part of the compensation package, you will always play the opening set and I'll always rent the van and rent the hotel room. So I'm essentially subsidizing your band's tour and you got to learn my, you know, my, my tunes and play with me and I'll, I'll pay you for that role, whatever modest, you know, whatever kind of modest payment that entails. And so that was a win, at least for a while. And then, you know, in a perfect world, everybody gets too big for that and they move on and we all reshuffle our roles respectively to one another. But yeah, I try to ask, what makes you want to do this job? Because very often it's not the immediate com compensation package. You know, it's like in every reporter that I chat with, you know, who's maybe covering my upcoming show. That's probably not the position they want to land at full time. So to try to be mindful. Yeah. Like what is their longer term objective? And is there a moment when our objectives might overlap and we could be mutually beneficial to one another? I think that's really important to me too, is the, the mutual benefit. And if it doesn't align, then let it lie. I try, you know, with, definitely with exceptions, but I try not to operate on too many favors or strong arming. What's the scenario in which we're both excited and we leave speaking well of the other? That's huge. One of my mentors, so I still have a bunch, <laughs> all informal mentors, but one of my mentors says Woody Woofy. So it's an acronym, W-D-Y-W-F-Y. What do you want for yourself? And when he's leading somebody, that's one of the first conversations he has. What do you want for yourself professionally? What do you want for yourself personally? Now I, as your leader, can help you, enable you to get those things for yourself. And then if, and he understands their values too. So what's important to you? And if your Woody Woofy is outside of your values, he helps hold you accountable. So it's a great way to, to lead and you do get great results by, by using that methodology. And it's a good hang. I mean, I, maybe me from maybe more in my universe, it's like I'm living with my band. Yeah. So it's like, it's not, you know what I mean? It's not just about extracting a great stage performance. It's about finding someone who's eager to deliver a great stage performance and then entwining our lives in a way that feels good. I mean, even this is a small thing, but Becky, the manager that I mentioned before, like snacks are a much larger deal in music than I think anyone would possibly guess. Like, you know, writers are always mentioned as a way 
to demonstrate how spoiled artists are, right? Oh my God, they need organic guacamole. But it's very often, it's like the only time you're having a meal is whatever's written on that sheet for a long time if you're touring. So it's, it starts to feel less spoiled after you've eaten, you know what I mean? Like the ninth Pop-Tart or whatever of the day when you're in an early band. And so, yeah, like paying attention to what people like. I know Aviva likes coconut water. I know that Joshua Holmgren, when he gets home, always wants macaroni and cheese. Like knowing that kind of thing and trying to stock the little moments in your lives where it is going to be tough. We had to get up early. We're on the road for eight hours. We're not going to be, we're not going to get a good night's sleep tonight to try to take the edge off that in any way we can. This is a question that I've wanted to ask of a musician for a long time. And particularly, you know, one who has toured a lot. You know, there's an event or there's a show you're playing in Omaha. You're driving six hours through a snowstorm. You know, there are going to be 10 people at that show. How do you motivate yourself to play for those 10 people as if it was a packed house? Oh, man. You know, it's interesting because when it's really dire like that, it's okay. It's almost easier if it's a snowstorm. Then if it's just you didn't sell any tickets in Omaha, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Because I, I, played, I have played the snowstorm. I have played the flood in New Orleans. I have played, you know, but when you just didn't sell tickets, the the hard part, I'm thinking of a show in Birmingham, Alabama, probably was the last one where it was like, you know, you drove for hours. You know, there's 30, it, it, you, there's as many people as there are students in a sixth grade class in a public school. And you have to diffuse the sympathy that the audience feels for you first, because they are so, they're, it's like they're embarrassed on your behalf, which is not a way that a party starts, right? So I think it's a lot of performative planning. I mean, I think I ended up, I know I ended up stage diving at that by getting all of us super, super close, you know, to try to force people out of their concern for your well-being because they feel bad for you. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is an ego thing, right? It's sort of just embarrassing that you couldn't draw, but we're here. We have one night to live this Thursday night. We don't get this one back. How do we, you paid your 25 bucks. Let's extract every cent of value and of entertainment and of communion that we can from that. Maybe that means jumping on the floor, you know, and sit and everybody dancing together, you know, with a wireless mic. Maybe that means bringing everybody on stage once in Doomtree and Shreveport. That meant bringing, leaving the venue and we just played the music from the open, we opened the doors on the tour van and just played the music on the stereo. We all just kind of danced around it. Oh, that's cool. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. A number of years ago, you collaborated with the Minnesota Orchestra and I was at one of those shows, amazing show. So thank you for doing that. I wonder how did you, how did that opportunity come about? Almost all of the credit for that idea, all of the credit for that idea is owed to the Minnesota Orchestra. So I got an email from Grant Meacham on their team, and it seemed so unlikely that I sort of wondered if it was real. Like, is this spam, you know, when I first received it? But it ended up being, yeah, one of the most challenging and rewarding and outlandishly cool musical experiences of my life. I mean, it's just... Can you describe it? Yeah, I mean, I think... In some way, it's tough when it's tough to describe like the magnitude of scale and like the order of magnitude different that being on stage with an orchestra feels from being from the still very electric sensation of being on stage with a smaller ensemble. And I guess when I say smaller ensemble, I would never say I would say with my rap crew, with my band, like with four people. And so I remember the first time taking stage. I mean, it's almost like 
like woozy. Sound is coming from the wrong way because all the musicians are behind you, right? So the music is hitting the back of your head. Whereas when you're in like an electric environment, you know, you've got small speakers by your feet called monitors where all of the music is coming towards your face. <laughs> and yeah, I think I said then it felt like transitioning from like a skateboard to the bow of a destroyer. You know, it was just huge. And yeah, I remember an, an instrumental outro to a song called Warsaw, which is kind of gritty. It's driving. There's a little bit of dissonance. And instrumental outros can be sort of weird if you're the front person, because what do you do not only with your hands, but with your whole body? You don't really have a role. I just remember standing like center stage and then me move to stand on my tiptoes and then just, yeah, feeling myself well up, you know, like a carried like a kite sort of on the swell of music coming behind me. It's dramatic. I mean, you know, you get a few dozen virtuosic players together and humans can do some pretty moving, powerful things. And I was very much a member of the audience in that moment, as, as well as a performer. And when that originally came about, what was the vision for it? I wanted to do something pretty ambitious if I could. I mean, I, it's you know what an orchestra can do. It's enormous. It's powerful. It's huge. The dynamic range, like from the loudest that they get to the quietest, right, is outlandish. And the, and the hall that they'll play in, right, has been perfectly and meticulously mathematically designed to showcase every, you know, every swipe of the bow across the strings. I mean, every breath, literally every human breath, right, that's being pushed through these woodwinds. And so I felt like I knew how much value they were bringing. <laughs> so what am I going to bring that's it could possibly be comparable. And, and so I tried to devise an evening of entertainment that was both music and I don't love the word storytelling. I think it's pretty played out, but music and writing and monologue. So I told, I kind of did a science experiment, science project in advance of doing the show where I scanned my own brain as I was trying to fall out of love with someone. And over the course of the evening, I told that story, showed my brain scans, shared the science, invited a scientist on stage to kind of demonstrate how it all worked. And uh, the orchestrator, Andy Thompson, who I mentioned before, he, he wrote all the scores. And I asked, yo, could you do like the TED Talk theme, but not be so close to it that we'll be sued? He was like, absolutely. And so we had like a big red rug come out and I had like a fake mic on, you know, the little headset mic and kind of Oofed on that. So, yeah, I, it felt a hybrid of kind of tongue in cheek, kicky nonsense. And for me, like the biggest heartbreak of my life. So, I, yeah, I went for the fences on that one. Yeah, I will say, and that, that, that was the comment I was going to make is it seemed extraordinarily bold and audacious and risky. Did it feel that way for you? It's, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone like, thinks before it works, you're not audacious. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's an after it worked word, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But uh, or maybe it's not. It felt big. It felt... I, I remember being so excited about the concept that, that I got nauseous at my mm. kitchen sink. Really? Which it doesn't... I've only had that happen a few times where, you're, where the aesthetic thrill almost feels like seasickness. Yeah, and then you know you're onto something good. 
you know, if I could have that four more times in my career, I'd be lucky. But yeah, it felt like if I can do this well, this is going to be rad. Can I do this well? Let's go find out. There's a lot of new skills to learn along the way. But I, yeah, I, you know, knock on wood, that, that one did go well. We did pull that one off. And it's something that I think both parties felt really proud of. Well, you should. It, it, what was the biggest thing you learned from that? Oh, my God. I mean, it was for someone whose musical career has been in, in hip hop. I mean, there are just it's like day one practice was hugely informative. I mean, I did feel it felt weird. I was like, all oh, the music's coming from the wrong direction. How do you all even hear each other? You know, how do I know where the beat is? I remember the the super talented and approachable and cool and smart conductor, Sarah Hicks. She was like, you know what, Dessa, just follow the baton, you'll know, right? But the conductor stands a little bit, I mean, she's to my left, and she's a little bit behind me. So it's sort of peripherally that I'm watching for this downward gesture of the conductor's baton to know where the downbeat is. But I also want to present to the audience, right? So I'm not looking at her because then I'd be in profile to the audience. My attention would be misdirected. So I'm rapping and I realize that what I see is this downward gesture is not her baton, but her, her ponytail bouncing. So I'm rapping to the beat of her ponytail, which is helping absolutely not. I mean, it really was like day one, what is happening? And I don't read music. And so I think, I, I don't know if you know what, like form anxiety. It, no, like, like sometimes when my insurance company sends me forms to fill out, I feel anxious, even though the, I'm the only person who would know how to fill them out. Like it's me. I know what my address is. Do you know what I mean? I hate that. And so I think I had a little bit of that. It was just like all of these pages of things where if I kind of slowed it down, it's like, you know, the song, these notes look like they're going up, you know, the part that goes up. But I was afraid, I guess, also that members of the orchestra would think I wasn't a real musician, right? Because my skill set was so divorced, was so different from theirs. And no one was going to think they weren't. Really. I think I was also pleasantly surprised at how many of them were like, cool, so how, what's with breath control? Like, like they had technical questions for me in the same way that I had technical questions for them. How do you guys make your reads? How come there's that filigree on the mouthpiece of the harp? Is that just pretty? Oh, that's to stop the sweat from making it slippery to fall on your chin. Cool. It's like a skateboard grip tape. <laughs> well, you'll be doing it again next year. And do you have a different vision for that collaboration? Or what's the plan? Yeah, I'm sort of working it up now. I've got like got big post-it notes around my apartment. And I'm just sort of collecting raw material. What could be, what's like the, what's the monologue kind of scaffolding on which this one should sit? And I'm writing a lot of new music with Laserbeak and Andy Thompson. So I think we'll have at least like 10 new orchestral charts to premiere that night as well. The thing that was remarkable is that you're the leader, you're the talent, you're the focus of the event. And at the same time, you had to be a follower too. So, you know, that, that, that interplay between being a leader and being a follower throughout practice, learning how the, these musicians play, just adjusting to the direction of the music, which I hadn't even thought of, that, that had to have been something so new and so out of the ordinary for you. I mean, I wonder in some way if for people who spend most of their professional lives, like in a more corporate or institutional environment, I wonder if this would resonate in that the, not the values necessarily, but the protocol and the language and the corporate, the culture of the orchestra was a lot to learn. It's different, you know, and need be. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a mainstay of like Minnesota music culture and it's an institution that dates for decades and decades and it's Grammy winning and they, you know, they kick ass at mall. And 
<laughs> you know, and I'm in like a pretty small group that's nimble and bright, but we're small. And so even just learning about, yeah, it felt like learning the culture was part of it as well. You know, so the decision-making process, the decision tree, you know, and the orchestra is going to work differently than it does in my group where, you know, really it's probably just three or four of us get on the phone, hash it out, yes or no. And, and even just like the traditions of bowing, you know, those are still, yeah, it felt in some ways like being acculturated. It felt not totally dissimilar from what I've toured in other countries and have learned a little bit about how the process of presentation and thanks and lights go there. Yeah, it felt like I felt like visiting different, yeah, cultural terrain. You started out by describing yourself as working in the language arts, which I love that because I think of you as a musician, but you truly are a language artist and you have a book of poetry coming out. How does your writing fit in with the other parts of your career? Yeah, I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be, you know, a musician in my 20s with any kind of serious vocational intent. Wrote a lot of essays, sent them off to, you know, the New Yorker and the like and self-addressed stamped envelopes, sassy as we used to call them. And it was only by virtue of not making a lot of traction in that as publishing, you know, in my late teens and early 20s, that a friend of mine suggested that I try to deliver some of my essays in a performative way. So that got me into slam poetry, which is like competitive, usually done at bars, you know, or educational institutions. And then it was through slam that I got into hip hop music. So more broadly. And so, yeah, for me, I think language has been a first love you know, ever since I was little, like knee high, three, three and a half. And I remember in school bus as a kid and like, you know, if an object passed in the window, like playing a dictionary game in my head where I had to try to su supply a, you know, a dictionary style definition as soon as it kind of passed out of view, panning past the window as the school bus drove by. So for me, I think it probably, all of these endeavors feel a little bit more related than they might theme on like a consumer side. I know that plays are packaged differently than books are packaged or different than music. And we go to different places to see them, but, um, but trying to find exactly the right words and then fit them together like a puzzle or solder them together by force, that task can feel related across all of those disciplines. Just really quickly, I know I have you over time, so I apologize for that, but I have a young daughter who is an artist. Any advice you have for a father? To, uh, how old is she? She is six and a half. Oh, geez. yes. And she's so clearly an artist. The way she sees the world is different than the mm. way I see it. So how can I foster that in her? I mean, it sounds like even by the enthusiasm that I hear in your voice about the different lens through which she's, you know, viewing the universe. It sounds like you're about, you know, four strides ahead of a lot of parents to be excited about that, to give her room to be excited about what she's excited about. But yeah, I would say if it's possible to have some rad stuff at home, books, TV, songs, things that she's digging. I would say, yeah, most of the advice that I'm not a parent. So most of the advice that I give usually is to like young artists as they're figuring out their careers. But maybe some of that would hold at six and a half, too, I think. Sometimes we imagine that curiosity is something that should sort of happen in our off hours. And I think that for artists and maybe people more broadly, like curiosity ought to be taken very seriously and to take the time and even the resources to like meaningfully indulge in our fascinations. 
not after our work is done, but when our fascinations hit to like prioritize that moment. I'm not always good at it either, but like, hang on, I'm gonna call you back. I just thought of the coolest couplet. I wanna do that more because conversations can be scheduled and the thrill of discovery or creativity is much harder to pencil into a day planner. Dessa, I have so much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Next week, I will be talking to humanitarian Matt Gerber. Not only does Matt serve as global lead for community impact at Gartner, he has been involved with volunteer disaster recovery around the world for more than two decades. We talk about how his leadership abilities have grown and developed from his humanitarian work. We also discuss the growing importance of corporate social responsibility, and we even have a candid discussion about mental health. Thanks to Richard, Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.